This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. iPods, DVD players, cars, clothes, jewelry, computers, flat screen TVs or, more generally, stuff. Stuff surrounds us and it permeates our personal and work lives. We're told from birth that having more stuff will make us happier, and all we need to do when we're feeling a little down is a little retail therapy, and everything will be better. Driving down the street in any town USA, it's not at all unusual to see only half-joking bumper stickers proclaiming simply, he who dies with the most toys wins. Stuff. We're continually dealing with finding it, buying it, selling it, trading it, and disposing of it. There's no doubt that dealing with stuff is a huge part of most people's lives, especially in the U.S. However, one question people rarely ask themselves is, where's all my stuff come from? Or other important questions like, what goes into my stuff and who and what is required and affected to allow me to be able to buy that DVD player at Walmart, that shirt at Banana Republic, or just about any other consumer good that people typically buy these days? One person who has asked that question intensively for many years is today's guest, Annie Leonard. She's an author and activist who has spent the past 10 years of her life traveling the globe fighting environmental threats and doing research for her newly published book entitled The Story of Stuff, How Our Obsession with Stuff is Trashing the Planet, Our Communities, and Our Health, and A Vision for Change. In 2007, Annie also narrated a short film version of The Story of Stuff book, which has made its rounds on the internet, in which she delivers a rapid-fire, often humorous, and engaging story about, well, stuff where it comes from, and where it goes when we throw it away. As Annie points out in the book and the film, we have a problem with stuff in the U.S. With just 5% of the world's population, we're consuming 30% of the world's resources and creating 30% of the world's waste. If everyone consumed at U.S. rates, she asserts, we would need three to five planets rather than the one we actually do have. In both the book and short film, Leonard examines the real costs of extraction, production, distribution, consumption, and disposal. And she isolates the moment in history where she says the modern trend of consumption in the U.S. began. The story of stuff examines how economic policies of the post-World War II era ushered in notions of planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence, and how these notions are still driving much of the U.S. and global economies today. Leonard's inspiration for the film and book began as a personal musing over the question, where does all the stuff we buy come from, and where does it go when we throw it out? She traveled the world in pursuit of the answer to this seemingly innocent question, and what she found along the way were some very guilty participants and their unfortunate victims. And we are very fortunate to have Annie joining us today to tell us about those discoveries and that journey. So Annie, welcome to Green Talk Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
Well, it is great to have you. I'm a big fan of the video. I've just started on the book, so I can't say I've read the whole thing, but I've watched the video a couple times and I really, it was one of actually the inspirations, I think, behind a lot of what we do uh, at Simple Earth Media because it really tells the story of consumerism and the ugly side of it. And I was fascinated just by some of the information that you've come up with and really just even going back to the source of where this conspicuous consumerism, uh, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit later, what that actually means, uh, started in the U.S. and just the whole consumer movement and how we became a consumer-centric society. So but I'm curious. I talked about this question in the intro, this very basic and foundational question, a uh, very important question that you mused over about where the stuff we buy comes from. I- I'm curious, do you remember that moment and what the stuff in question was? I remember it exactly. It was like a bolt of lightning hitting me. I thought I had, first of all, I'd grown up in a very environmentally aware family, so I always had you know some general level of awareness and appreciation for the environment. And I grew up with a um, sort of post-depression era mother who really taught us not to waste, partly out of economic necessity, but partly just because you don't waste, like losers waste. It was there was a very strong culture of appreciation for what we had and a sort of a disdain for waste. So then I ended up going to college in New York City, and I was mesmerized, as I just was again last week when I was visiting there, by the piles of garbage. It's just incredible, the bags and bags and bags of garbage on the street. And I just got so curious about where they're all going. So I took a field trip to the Fresh Kills Landfill, which is on Staten Island. And for many, many years, it was the place where New York City's garbage went. And it was a profound event. That's where I got this sort of bolt of lightning. And I, excuse me. I um, really recommend that all of your listeners go to their dump. It is an amazing perspective to see on your city is to go to the dump. So I stood there as a college student and looked out over as far as I could see in every direction with stuff. There was furniture and appliances and food and pizza boxes and shoes and books. Like It was just stunning to me. So it wasn't one item so much as just the vast scale of destruction that that sort of the underbelly of our consumer economy. I was struck with um, curiosity of how could this be, of curiosity about why is nobody talking about this, why is it secret, and just of outrage that I felt something was deeply, deeply wrong. And so I said, I'm going to figure this out. Well, and then we really appreciate that because it's odd to me. It's kind of fascinating the fact that, you know, since the 50s, really, this uh, whole mindset of consumerism has existed. It's it's the foundation of our economy and the economies of the world. And, and yet sort of nobody's ever really taken a step back and said, what, what are we doing? And is this working? And what else could we be doing? And well, and even more importantly, what is the effect on us as a planet and as a people in, in this happening? So that was one of the things that I found really uh, interesting and useful about, about both the film and the book. And, and you break this down. You talk about, and it's, I love the way you break it down in the film, especially because you have all the visual elements as well. And you talk about the, the materials economy, that the, the way that stuff actually happens is called the materials economy. And there are five, essentially five phases of this. And you go through them, extraction, production, distribution, consumption, and disposal. Um, and talk about this essentially being a linear system and essentially an open loop system and what essentially is a closed loop, a finite planet. We have finite resources and that essentially it's a formula for disaster. And I'm just, I'm curious uh, too, you know, the film came out in 2007 and the book I know just came out this month. What have you been doing between those two events? Have you been doing further research for the book? Have things changed at all? Wow, there's a lot there. That's a good question. Um, When the film came out in 2007, I had no idea that it was going to grow into a book. I had no idea it was going to catch on like it did. In fact, we made the film partly because I was um, doing a live version of the talk, and I was flying all around the country doing a live version of the talk for a lot of environmental groups and students, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I had had given this talk like a hundred times, and 
Um, and in the live talk, I have a big piece of butcher paper behind me, and it's an hour-long, very animated, um, you know, part comedy routine, part like aerobics routine. It's like <laughs> I'm very animated for an hour talking about garbage. And there's only so many times you can do that. I, I, sometimes I think if I do that talk one more time, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> so I, how can I get to, And also every time I gave the talk, people would raise their hands and say, oh, can you come to my church? Can you come to my school? And I was very excited because actually a lot of people have said this stuff before, but um, the, the I think the sort of fun and engaging way that we have figured out about how to talk about this made it more accessible. So we made the film. My friends and I made the film pretty much to free me up from having to go around the country giving this talk. We were thinking that success would be if 50,000 people saw the film. We thought that would be like beyond our wildest dreams. We put this film up on the Internet um, in December 2007. And to our absolute shock, it got 50,000 people in four hours. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's gone absolutely crazy. We are now at over 8 million online views. Wow. And as we put it up there free for people to watch, um, according to Google Analytics, it's been watched in over 223 countries and territories. I mean, it's gone all over the world. It's been translated on YouTube into dozens of languages. It's been on national television in Brazil and in Israel and a few other countries. Um, I've heard of street theater groups in, in South Africa and a puppeteering company in Pakistan and an Oxford economics graduate program. All these things that have been inspired by it and, and built around it. It's just amazing to me. And so um, the first thing I did after that film came out was just sort of be in shock for a moment. And then I got inundated by um, emails from people. We get about a thousand emails a week, of sometimes even more, with people who say that the film really touched them, really encouraged them to think about all this stuff in their lives differently and asking questions. And so I did initially think it was just going to be a short-term fluke that so many people were interested. So I used to put my little daughter to bed at night and then go sit down at my desk and work answering all these emails because I didn't want to leave one inspired person unanswered. And after doing this for a couple of months and the emails just kept coming and I was getting more and more exhausted, I thought, this is not going to work. So then I thought, I'm going to write a book because I, I couldn't possibly provide all the information people were asking for one at a time. So I spent the last year and a half um, researching and writing this book, which just came out this last week. That's great. Well, congratulations on the book's release. Uh, that's phenomenal, and I, you know, I want to zoom in. I, at the risk of adding any nausea to your to your life, uh, I, I don't want to make you repeat things you've said a million times. But for those who are the uninitiated in this audience, who maybe have not seen the film or, or read the book yet. Um, I wanted to just highlight some of the points and go through at least some of the more salient points and the more interesting points of each of these phases uh, of this cycle that you talk about. And uh, let's start in a linear fashion with extraction. And, and extraction is this, you know, the idea of pulling out the from our natural resources to create goods. And, and just some of the more shocking figures here. You talk about the fact that uh, the fact that a third of the planet's natural resources have been used in the last decade alone. Is that right? Yeah, isn't that stunning? Um, and right now we are using 1.5 planets worth of resources each year. Um, by that, I talk, mean the regenerative capacity of the planet, the, the bio capacity, the amount the planet can grow back, basically, the amount of water it can replenish, biomass it can grow back, you know, carbon that it can, can process, the amount that it can manage each year. We're using one and a half times as much. So we're mining too much. The mining, of course, will never grow back. We're, we're fishing too much. There's huge dead zones all over the um, ocean now. We're chopping too much. We're, just, we're depleting the soils too much. We're just using too much stuff. We're extracting too much from the earth. 
And it's just so crazy that this is not headline news. When we have one planet and we're using 1.5 planets worth of resources, I think one of the most interesting institutions that tracks this is the Global Footprint Network. And they identify through very complex methodology the day each year by which we've used that year's worth of biocapacity. And they call it Earth Overshoot Day. And each year it gets a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier. And now it's around, um, last year I think it was September 25th, right around there. So it'll probably be a little bit earlier in September this year. And that means from that point on, we're, we're eating into the accumulated stockpile of the planet. And you know, you just can't do that forever. It's like if you, if you were paid $100 a month and you spent $150 a month, you know, you just can't do it forever. You're going to run it, you're going to hit bump up against limits. And that's what we're happening in terms of extraction. We are just using too much stuff. I think people have that sort of feeling, that itch in the back of their head that, you know, this isn't sustainable, but I don't think they really, it needs, people need it put out in front of them in black and white to, to be shown exactly what, what the, uh, what's happening and what the effects are and the consequences of this. You, know, you talk about just a few other, uh, in the extraction section, a few other uh, statistics that are a little bit eye-opening. Uh, less than 4% of our original forests remain in the U.S. Uh, 40% of our waterways are undrinkable. And uh, I already mentioned the figure about uh, 5%. We're 5% of the population using 30% of the resources and creating 30% of the waste. Um, but you, you talk on a global scale as well, uh, you talked about global fisheries being 75% of them are fished at or beyond their capacity. Uh, 80% of the world's original forests are gone. And, and this is a really staggering figure. In the Amazon, you put it in perspective by saying in the Amazon, 2,000 trees a minute um, are being taken down. And that's the equivalent of seven football fields per minute. Yeah, those are all true. Um, one of the facts that Glenn Beck and some of the Fox News people have taken um, criticism about is a 4% of original forest because they've said, yes, but we're replanting those. You know, Glenn Beck said, if God hadn't wanted us to cut down trees and replant them, he wouldn't have invented seeds. <laughs> he actually that, said. That sounds like a Glenn but, Beck um, statement. <laughs> but um, So it is true that some areas are being replanted, but a plantation does not serve the same ecological role as a forest in terms of water, the hydrological um, cycle, in terms of Wildlife conservation habitat, they're vastly, vastly different. So, a, you know, an industrial tree plantation is not the same thing as a forest. I just wanted to clarify that about that one fact. But um, all those facts are true, and it's especially shocking for people in um, the United States and the other really wealthy parts of the world to understand this because we are so isolated from seeing those. You know, I live in California. We've had a 10-year drought. I can still turn my tap on any time. Like, I, I wouldn't know there's a drought. Um, you know, I can still get mangoes from Chile and, you know, things from all over the world. Where we live, it's so comfortable that we're really shielded by the reality um, that, that planetarily we are bumping up against limits. And, in fact, a lot of people have said that we're using too much stuff over time. You know, back from early religious leaders to Thoreau to... Um, you know, um, Paul Hawk and to many, many others. One of the things that I think is different about what I've been able to do is I actually went around the world and visited hundreds and hundreds of factories where our stuff is made and dumps where our stuff is dumped. And so while Thoreau's um, beautiful writings about how we're using too much stuff was more about sort of the, the loss of the personal spirituality or personal integrity, the sort of loss we, we as consumers bear, what I was able to do is really look at the loss that the entire planet bears. You know, there are communities that I have visited in India and Haiti and South Africa and elsewhere where there is no more water, you know, where fishing communities along the coast in southern India where there just are no more fish, um, places in Haiti where the soil is so depleted that you simply cannot grow something. 
And so here, while we're very shielded from it, it's, there's an extra responsibility on us to really go find out what is happening elsewhere in the world. <laughs> and there's such wonderful educational resources available on the Internet to, to see for ourselves that um, we're bumping up against limits. We just cannot keep consuming at this rate forever. And since we so disproportionately consume in the United States, you know, with 5% of the world's population consuming 30% of the world's resources, the onus is especially on us to figure out how we can scale back, use less stuff overall, use less toxic stuff for sure, and then share that stuff more equitably. Speaking of toxins, that kind of brings us to the next phase of the <laughs> consumer cycle, which is the production cycle. And you talk uh, about, in both the film and the book, about that there, there are over 100,000 synthetic chemicals in use today and that we're, you know, and not only we're adding toxins and we're creating super toxins through, through the, the, and that's actually through the process of the, the disposal. So I we won't get ahead of myself. during production too. <laughs> oh, during production as well. So we're yeah. creating these super toxins as well, like dioxin and, and other things. And that very few of these are, are being tested for their health impacts. And, and that at least as of the time of the film, none were being tested for the synergistic impacts with interaction with other chemicals. It's kind of like the, the version they do with the pharmaceuticals and their interactions with other drugs that doctors right. have to have and know about, hopefully. Um, but that's not happening. Um, so what are some of the worst offenders in terms of toxins being used in the production process these days? Oh, there are so many. It's just amazing. Um, it's amazing how prevalent they are. This is another thing that's actually invisible to us in real, unless we really start paying attention. In our um, personal care products, our sunscreens and deodorants and lipsticks, in our electronics, our MP3 players, our laptops, in our furniture, in our upholstery, in our pillows, in our clothing. I mean, it's just all over the place are these toxic chemicals. So much so now that every single person on the planet has what, what's called a body burden. The amount of toxics that build up in your body are called your body burden. And actually recently some scientists wanted to see what the body burden was of newborn babies who hadn't had a lifetime of cigarette smoking and you know using toxic products and all to accumulate this stuff. And so they tested the amniotic fluid and umbilical cords of newborn babies and they found an average of 287 industrial and agricultural chemicals in these newborn babies. And I say that just to give an example of it is not about lifestyle choices. It is about that our entire living environment, now our homes, our schools, our workplaces, are just so permeated with these. So some of the toxics that are really notorious are, are probably familiar names to people because they occur naturally, and so they've been notorious poisons for years, things like mercury, lead, cadmium, those are all heavy metals that are enormously toxic and they occur naturally in the ground. And I, I put the emphasis on in the ground. There's a reason nature, nature left them buried, buried deep in the ground is they're super toxic. Hmm. But what we have done is taken lead and mercury and cadmium, um, which are neurotoxins, carcinogens, I mean, really dangerous stuff and just permeated our, our products with them. So they're in plastics, they're in personal care products, they're in our electronics, they're, they're everywhere are the metals, the naturally occurring ones. But then there are also what's called synthetic chemicals that are, are new chemicals that scientists have figured out. And synthetic chemicals are not, by definition, good or bad. You could have a synthetic one that wasn't dangerous. But unfortunately, tens of thousands of them that we are using are dangerous. And even worse is many of them are new, so they haven't really been studied. And so we're doing this sort of giant human chemical experiment of just bombarding our communities with these toxic chemicals. Um, there's so many that it's even it's hard to even begin. But um, you know, one of the um, products that has loads of them that I really encourage people to avoid at all costs is PVC plastic. This is an easy thing to rid you out of your life and everyone should start doing it. Most people who know that there are environmental problems are concerned about plastics, but some plastics are even worse than others. And PVC plastic is the most 
toxic plastic at all stages of its life cycle. At the production, it involves enormously toxic materials so that the worker and the um, host communities get poisoned. At, at the consumption stage, when we use it, it leaches toxics into our homes and mouths and into our bodies. And then at the disposal stage, when you burn it or dispose of it, it also releases even more toxins. The way that um, you can find PVC plastic is by the little number. You know how um, plastics have those little recycling arrows, little logo on the mm-hmm. bottom of them usually? Yeah. PVC is the number three. You can also recognize PVC, or it's also called vinyl or polychloride vinyl, um, um, polyvinyl chloride, sorry. The way that you can recognize it is by its smell. Um, it, you know that smell of a new shower curtain oh, yeah. or a new car or like the shoe section of a Target store? Yes. That's PVC and huh. it stinks. Um, so if and there's actually been studies of the air in your bathroom weeks after you install the new shower curtain and it's still off-gassing these toxins. So that, that's a, if you're concerned about protecting your family from toxics, Keep PVC out. So that smell is a bad thing. (laughs) That smell is something you want to avoid. Right. It's bad for a reason. Another source of um, a lot of toxics are personal care products. Um, And it's not just women with makeup. There's also, you know, shampoo, deodorant, toothpaste, sunscreen. And a great place for people to learn about that is a database that's online called Skin Deep. If you just Google Skin Deep, it has tens of thousands of personal care products and it lists exactly what toxics are in them, exactly what health impacts those toxics are associated with, and then other products in the same category that aren't so toxic. So that's a great place for people to start to look up all their favorite products and figure out which are the cheapest ones available. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break right here. Sorry, not cheapest. I mean safest, not cheapest. (laughs) Okay, got it. Well, we're going to take a quick break right here on Green Talk Radio. We're talking with author Annie Leonard. She's an author and activist who has spent the past 10 years of her life fighting environmental threats and studying the effects of conspicuous consumerism on both the planet and its people. Her latest book is The Story of Stuff. We'll be right back on Green Talk Radio. Thanks, everyone. And we're back on Green Talk. This is Sean Daly. We're talking today with Annie Leather- Leonard. She is an author and activist and the author of the book, The Story of Stuff. Also, there is a short film by the same name that you can find online. You can find information about Annie and the book online at www.storyofstuff.org. You can also follow her on Twitter at Story of Stuff and also facebook.com slash Story of Stuff will get you to the Facebook page. Uh, Annie, we were talking about the uh, general problem uh, with consumption of stuff and just the whole consumeristic uh, culture that we have in the U.S. before the break. And I wanted to go in. We talked a little bit about extraction and the production side of it. And I wanted to move into the distribution side just quickly and then and get into what I think with the core of it, which is consumption, really. And that's stage four is sort of the, really the central issue. Um, on the distribution side, you say that uh, in, the, in the film, in the book, that the trick is really for the industry to sell toxic, contaminated junk as quickly as they can uh, and externalize costs. What, what's that about? Um, so externalized costs is sort of economists speak for all of the costs of doing an activity or making a product that you aren't actually paying for. Um, so a company, for example, that is making PVC rubber ducks, if they dump their toxic waste into a river, that river then contaminates an aquifer, and so all the people in that community lose their access to clean water, um, have increasing health problems. The costs of getting clean water, the costs of, of missed work and missed school, the medical costs of that community are actually costs of making the PVC rubber ducks, but um, they're not included in the company's accounting books. And so they've externalized those costs or sort of shunted them onto 
um, the neighbors or the environment. And externalized costs is a huge problem. Um, the United Nations is right now doing a study. It's not even finished yet, but a little bit of it leaked out last week. And they looked at the top, the biggest 3,000 corporations, the public 3,000 biggest public corporations in the world, and they're trying to calculate what the economic cost is of the um, environmental damage that they've externalized, so the things they're not paying for. And they're not even done yet. They haven't even gotten to like adding in the waste yet, and they've already gotten to $2.2 trillion. Wow. These companies are externalizing $2.2 trillion worth of environmental damage, which you and me and future generations and the animals and the planet, we are all um, having to pay for. And, you know, you talk about the social justice side of this, too, and you use the example in the film of the Congo that 30% of the kids in the Congo dropped out to mine Colton, which is used in electronics. They dropped out of school, so we're affecting their futures, uh, and that, that all to subsidize this so that we can get these cheap goods. Uh, 30% of the kids in one region of the Congo, it's not the whole Congo, but in one region, but it's still, it's a huge, and, and mining, and coal tan mining in the Congo is, is violent, is dangerous, I and mean, these kids are paying with their lack of education, they're paying with their health, they're often paying with their limbs, you know, so that we can continue to get coal tan, which is a metal that we need for our cheap and easy electronics, and as, excuse me, as um, these electronics become increasingly disposable, like cell phones now, the average life of a cell phone in the U.S. is a year, which is crazy. I mean, these things should be made to last years and years and years. But as long as we keep having um, this disposable junk, we're just going to keep having more and more pressure on kids in the Congo and elsewhere to make these kind of sacrifices so that we can keep having all our consumer junk. So there really is a huge um, social justice and, and ethical piece of this. It's interesting to think too, and this is a question I'd like to delve into uh, with you quickly, is the idea of how do we get from waste not want not of the, you know, the 30s and the 40s and so forth to this you know, must have and uh, the haves and the have nots and uh, you know, everything else that I was talking about in the intro as far as uh, we know, just more stuff makes us happier. Uh, you know, and, and you, you pointed to one thing, which I, I never really understood that I was, I'm a child of the late sixties. And so for me, it was already happening. And, you know, so uh-huh. as I'm in school, that was just already American culture. Um, so it was interesting. You actually pointed back to Victor, uh, LeBeau, I think is the uh-huh. pronunciation. He was an economist and a retail analyst who had a very, you know, I guess, infamous statement and a philosophy that he espoused. It first came out in the spring 1955 issue of the journal of reading. And it sort of became the mission statement and rallying cry for American American consumerism moving forward. Uh, and I'll just read this real quickly. Our enormously productive economy <clears throat> demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever accelerating rate. And that sort of, I guess, formed the backbone of conspicuous consumption. Well, actually, he articulated it very well, but he was not one of the chief planners um, because it was already really well underway when he was, he was more of describing it and articulating it. Um, there was, it was a much broader group of people who actually were really planning this. Um, they're extremely broad. What, what was really happening is after the Industrial Revolution, when our productivity just increased so much, it just became clear that we just could, could make much, 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 much more stuff. And then um, after World War II, especially is when there was a lot of pressure around this, because of that increased productive capacity was put into the wartime efforts after World War II. So when the war was done, the industries, the businesses, the economic planners, the government was like, oh, man, what are we going to do now? What are we going to keep making? Because we don't have to keep making these bombs. How are we going to keep all these factories humming? Now, at the, at the same point time, Europe was having the same kinds of 
Ascend in Europe took a very different approach. Europe said, well, instead of working as hard as before, we could work less, but we could have more leisure time. So they chose a path of um, lower productivity than we had, but more leisure time, less stuff, but more community, more family, more vacations, more sort of social goods. We took a path in the United States for, an, it's a, for a number of reasons, which I really explain in the book much more thoroughly. There's a number of reasons that we took a path in the United States that was focused on continuing to produce as much stuff as possible, keep the factories operating at full capacity, produce as much stuff as possible. And then because the, the market was getting glutted, like there's only so many toasters one needs, there's only so many cars one needs, um, that's when the industry really started to promote this idea of planned obsolescence of making stuff that would either break imminently so that we would have to chuck it and buy another or changing the fashion and, and really promoting the advertising and the consumer culture around it so that people would actually be embarrassed about using or wearing old stuff. And it was a very intentional plan. You know, In my book, I say not everything that industry has done that's bad was intentional, but this absolutely was. It is so well documented, and I have lots of examples in the book where industry decided to make things that would, would break quickly. They debated how fast could they make it break and still have consumers have enough faith to buy another one. <laughs> they debated how to make sure that two pieces of the item break at the same time so it's not repairable. Um, that we began to lose repair shops in this country. One of the goals they knew they had to have was that replacement costs were cheaper or close to repair costs. Mm. which is certainly the case for electronics these days. Yeah. Um, so, so there, and then all the changing of the, of the style, you know, the way that cars change all the time, shoes and clothes, fashion changes. I like to think of this one Oscar Wilde quote about fashion is a form of ugliness so intolerable it has to be changed every six months. <laughs> and that is true. They just keep it changing, and then they stigmatize you if you are wearing something older. One of the examples I found that I thought was incredible was um, so a bunch of memos from furniture manufacturers who did a campaign to stigmatize giving newlyweds the old furniture from the parents. Because the old way was that the newlyweds get in a house and then the parents give them all their extra furniture. And there was a very aggressive advertising campaign about you newlyweds are too good for your parents' old discards. Mm. You know, or celebrate the union with something new to really stigmatize um, sharing the old furniture from the parents. It's a very, very um, intentional effort to get us to um, associate our self-worth, our value, our status with what we have and can show off. And then to make that stuff break and go out of fashion as quickly as possible. So we'll keep buying more. And so TV and all the other forms of advertising are telling us, you know, as you put it really in a very funny, humorous way in the, in the film, it's like, we suck and we need to go buy more stuff. And, you know, even the companies that aren't telling us we suck are basically coming out with very inexpensive new generation products, you know, like Apple and even, you know, people who consider themselves pretty eco groovy are, are supporting these products and, and up, you know, revving their products quickly because they're feeling they want to keep up with the Joneses or they just want the latest stuff. So, I mean, you know, even the people that might think that they're really not, I mean, myself included, you know, it's, I got it. It was funny. I was researching this, uh, and I was, uh, watching the video for the second time. And at the end of it, an email popped up from Apple telling me that I needed to act now to reserve my iPad. <laughs> Oh, no. And my first reaction was, there was a deadline. My first reaction was, well, I better get on that. And then I went, wait a minute. I already have an iPhone, a MacBook Pro, and a Kindle. Why the hell do I need that again? You know, what, it's what, very it's, seductive. It's seductive. That's a good but, word. You know, it's, not, it's not because you're weak. Um, it's partly because new stuff is cool. And it's also because they employ armies of psychologists and development experts to figure out how we think. I mean, just today, I was actually in an airplane looking through this um, Sky Mall sort of magazine 
magazine and reading some of the ads. I mean, it was incredible about, you know, what is more fun than having your own personal jukebox? I was like, actually, I can think of lots of things that are more fun than having my own personal jukebox. <laughs> things about stand out, define yourself by having this, you know, carrying this one particular kind of purse. Like, it's just endless, the association of our personal value and prestige with stuff. And we are bombarded with these messages all day. Um, so, And one of the things I like to make really clear when I'm talking to people is I am not against stuff. I'm not like shame on you for wanting a little device to play music. Music is wonderful. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't have stuff that trashes the planet and poisons people. I'm not against stuff. I'm actually for stuff. I want us, our stuff to be safer, more durable, longer lasting, upgradable, repairable. I want our stuff to be of value added to our families and to the planet. So I'm not against stuff. I'm against stuff that trashes the planet and poisons people. But it doesn't have to be that way. Your Kindle, your iPad, your iPhone, those things could be made without toxics. And a lot of the electronic companies are beginning to phase out some toxics, which I'm really thrilled about. I'm sorry it took them so long. But they could be made without toxics. They could be made rechargeable repairable, um, upgradable. There's so many things that they could do to make them have less of a toll on the planet and on our personal health. So you see hope here for the future? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. People ask me all the time, do I think we're going to change? And I like to remind them we're using one and a half planets. (laughs) Change is inevitable. We are definitely going to change. The question is not if we're going to change, but how? Are we going to change by design or by default? Like, Are we going to be proactive and um, intentional and intelligent and compassionate and figure out how can we meet our needs without trashing the planet and each other? Or are we going to say, party on, I'm not, I absolutely refuse to budge. The American way of life is non-negotiable. And then we're just going to crash into ecological limits and we're going to be forced into change. But I'm really hoping we can do the first, which will be so much more um, uh, just and fair and um, better. Well, the book is the story of stuff. How our obsession with stuff is trashing the planet, our communities and our health and a vision for change. And the author is my guest today, Annie Leonard. Annie, thank you so much for being with us. I also want to just remind everybody before we uh, end that you can follow Annie on Twitter at story of stuff or at story of stuff. If you're used to Twitter speak on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash story of stuff. And the website is www.storyofstuff.org or .com, either one. Uh, Annie, again, thank you so much for being on the program with us and much luck with the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.